Well, good morning. I'm going to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Just a brief announcement. Uh, next Sunday night, we will be having our quarterly family meeting. And then we resume our Sunday evening services uh, after that. So that's a very exciting thing. And uh, we'll be back in the book of Jeremiah uh, starting on, I guess, March the 14th. So please be praying for that. Um, but it's been a long time. And gratefully, we're going to be back to normal sooner than later. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 4. In verse 11, Apostle Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Notice mature manhood is singular, children is plural. There's an emphasis on the corporate. Tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we have the, the manual here for church growth, and we pray that we would faithfully consider this passage, both in the preaching, but also in the hearing. And we pray that you would use this passage as it was intended when the Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write it. Lord, that it would address our fallen condition, and that it would edify us and challenge us to be God's people as we attain to mature manhood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite cartoon sketches features all of the animals that are presented in the four Gospels that serve Jesus in his earthly Ministry and, and in this sketch, these animals are all gathered around baby Jesus at, at the time of his birth. And, and, and the camel says, I, I will bear him gifts. And, and the donkey says, I, I will carry him. A, a fish says, I will pay his taxes. And a dove says, I, I will bless his baptism. A sheep says, I will keep him warm. A cow says, I will quench his thirst. And a chicken says, I will feed him. And a pig says, I will let him fill me with demons, then I'll jump off a, wait a second. <laughs> and so though the, the sketch concludes on a, a humorous note with this witty reaction, from the pig, it makes a point. Each of these animals saw their purpose in life was to serve the king. But when it comes to his image bearers, that's not our default position, if we're being honest, to serve the king. Our default position is, as Paul would say, to live for ourselves, to serve ourselves, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But recognize this, our tendency, our natural tendency is at cross purposes with God's plan for the world. God's plan for the world, as we saw last week, was to fill the earth with the rule 
and the reign of his great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet with that being the divine goal, a self-serving image bearer in a world that will be ruled by this king, this self-serving image bearer will either be judged or be brought into glad submission to this king. Those are the only options. Now, those who are brought in submission to this king, that's called the church, the body of Christ. And not only does he redeem us, we saw this last week, right? Not only does this king redeem us, he gives us gifts to take part in his glorious purpose. We saw that in verse 7 when Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So that's a very important verse. But there was an infinite cost for our lives to be redeemed. There was a, an infinite cost for our lives to be redirected. And we saw that in the excursion there in verses 8 to 10. He said, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended in the lower regions, the earth. Paul is saying he descended so that we might redeemed, be redeemed. He came on a mission to save his people. And that descension included a cross where he would take the wrath of God in our place and be raised from the grave in our place. That was the excursion. Paul wanted to remind us that our redemption and our gifts came at an infinite cost. But now, in verse 11, Paul says, now where was I? After that little brief excursion. In verse 7, he said, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And he says, ah, yes. Verse 7, grace was given. And now I'm going to give you a case in point, verse 11. And that brings us to the first part of this passage, what the gifts of the body are. Now, uh, last week we talked about how every Christian has individual gifts to serve in the body. Now he's going to talk about the, the macro gifts that you, you might consider that are vital for the body as a whole to function and to grow faithfully. Look with me in verse 11. It says, and he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and maybe your translation reads pastors. It's the only place in the New Testament where that noun pastor is used. And teachers. So Paul here gives four different individuals, different kinds of individuals who are gifted by Jesus and are given to the church. Now I want you to note again, Paul knows that Jesus doesn't give everyone the same gifts. So for instance, the apostles aren't prophets. They're not evangelists. They're not pastors and teachers. The prophets are not apostles. They're not evangelists. They're not pastors and teachers. Each one has their own gifts. And, and, and that is for our good. The diversity of our gifts enriches us because none of us have all that we need. None of us have all the gifts that we need for our own growth in godliness. And certainly the church as a whole doesn't have all the gifts in one person. That's why you need the entire body gifted in so many different ways. But notice these particular persons, these particular gifts, the apostles. Those were those who were witnesses of the resurrected Christ, and they were commissioned to establish the church's authoritative foundation. As we've already seen, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, but he also said the prophets. Now, these are not the Old Testament prophets, um, but those alive during the time of the apostles, the apostolic era, who, who spoke God's truth 
including those who received God's message, like the Old Testament prophets, and recorded it in what we know as the New Testament. And so you certainly have certain apostles who, who wrote some of the books of the New Testament, but then there were others who received the message who weren't apostles, like, like Luke um, and Mark uh, and James and Jude. They weren't apostles, but they received the Word of God and they inscripturated it. Now, neither one of these gifts, apostle and prophet, exists today. And we know that because the church is built on their foundation. And so those two offices ceased in the apostolic era, but they are the foundation of the church, which means their ministry still exists in the New Testament. The New Testament is the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. We don't need a new word from an apostle. We don't need a new word from a prophet. We have the 27 books of the New Testament. But notice the third type of gifted individual, the evangelist. Now, there's only one evangelist named in the New Testament. Uh, That's in the book of Acts. His name is Philip. But unlike the first two, this gift has not ceased. Uh, This gift continues today. And though every Christian has a responsibility to evangelize, and and let me just speak to that for a moment, Uh, you should begin every week. And and we do this most every Monday afternoon in our prayer group. You should begin every week praying for an opportunity to share the gospel. You pray the Lord would open up doors because every Christian here has a responsibility to evangelize. Every uh, Christian has a, has a sphere of influence. And, and that sphere of influence is your mission field. And so you should be praying for those opportunities. And it's amazing how many doors open up when you pray. For one thing, you're praying and God supernaturally opens up doors. But on another hand, when you're praying, you're more aware of those doors when God opens them up. Uh, I'm always aware, wow, God's answering my prayer. And then you take advantage of that open door. All of us are called to be evangelists. And yet some of us are uniquely gifted as evangelists. Uh, there There are men and women in this church who are uniquely spiritually gifted with that gift for the building up of the body to share the gospel. Uh, An evangelist isn't someone who just engaged in social work or social gospel ministry. An evangelist is someone who proclaims that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior. Jesus came to save sinners. God is holy. God is righteous. His, His requirements are perfect holiness and righteousness and and we are sinners and and we are in we are under the right righteous judgment of god and yet god has made a way god has made provision for our sin by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and raising him from the grave for our justification evangelists are uniquely gifted at calling sinners to repentance and faith the fourth office or the fourth person our kind of individual that is gifted for the church is the shepherd and teacher. Now, most scholars, and I'm with them on this, see that shepherd teachers is the same office. Certainly there are those gifted as teachers in our church that aren't called to shepherd. But all shepherds are called to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 2, able to teach. And I believe that Paul here is referring to the same office here. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where the term, the noun shepherd is used. And that's why we Baptists tend to go by the term uh, pastor. But it's the same office as elder and overseer. We've made that argument before. Uh, We won't take the time to make that argument again. But the word pastor is from the Latin word for shepherd. And that's where we got the English word pastor from the Latin word to shepherd. Now, what does a shepherd do? Uh, A shepherd knows, 
feeds, leads, and protects the sheep, the flock. And the primary way he does that is through teaching, through the teaching of the Word of God, uh, teaching the truths of the Word of God, and also exposing theological and moral errors. That is the calling of the pastor, the shepherd. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact it says that Jesus gave. Jesus gave these offices, these gifts to the body. You know, one of our biggest issues in life is questioning the goodness of God. But this text reminds us that our Messiah, our Savior, is a giving Messiah, a giving Savior. And and, and the fact that he gave these gifts to the church, what does that tell you? It signals not only his love for you, it also reminds us our need for these gifts, our need to be ministered by those with these gifts. It's not an option for a believer. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage, what the gifts of the body do. So he gave these gifts, notice verse 12, to equip. Now, that's an interesting verb. It was used in the Gospels for the mending of the nets. The disciples are mending their nets. It's almost like to to mend the people of God, to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, no pastor or even a large group of pastors, if a church has that privilege and blessing, can do all that needs to be done in a church in order for God's purposes for the church to be fulfilled. And and I think that's God's design. It certainly is. But, but this verse has been the subject of debate all the way back to the time the original King James Version of the Bible was translated. Because the way many interpreted this verse for the longest, based on the original translation of the King James, was Christ gave various ministers to the church with a threefold task. And, and so for centuries, the church read this to mean that the pastors had the threefold task of equipping the saints, doing the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the way many read that for many centuries. The problem with that translation is that it could support the false notion, and it did that only the pastors and the teachers do the ministry. That mentality largely took hold. And that's why many decades ago, Sir Johnson Lawrence was correct when he said, what does the layman really want? He wants a building which looks like a church, clergy dressed in the way he approves, services of the kind he's been used to and to be left alone. But that translation, that interpretation of this verse was dead wrong. Jesus gives the leaders to the church who equip the saints and the saints do the work of the ministry. Now, that's not to say that the, the, the pastors themselves are, are not a part of the body. They do ministry as well. But they're not the only ones. Their primary responsibility is to train, to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. And that's clearly the meaning when you consider the broader context. We saw in verse 7 that he's gifted every single Christian here. And so if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ today, as I said last week, it would be the height of pride and unbelief to say you're not gifted. There's nothing humble about that. You are gifted, and you are gifted for a purpose. You are gifted by design. So verse 7 tells us clearly 
that he has given gifts to everyone in the body. And then in verse 16, we're going to see in just a moment, he says, every joint, that's every member with which it is equipped, each part is to work properly. And so that is clearly how this text is to be rendered. So instead of giving three responsibilities to the pastor, as it was often understood, it really gives one task to the pastors, to the shepherd leaders, and that is to equip the saints. To equip the saints and so that the body might be built up. To do the ministry. In fact, that word ministry is where we get the word deacon. To do the work of deaconing. It's not to mean every person here is called to the office of deacon. That's an office. But it is called, it is a call to every Christian to use the gifts that God has given them. And generally, most Christians have more than one gift. There, there may be one predominant gift that you have. But generally, most Christians have more than one gift, and you're to use those gifts to do the work of service ministry, deaconing in the body. In other words, ministry is not just for a select few who are paid to do the work. All right? That's why I don't like to use the language of volunteer in our church. Uh, There's no volunteers here. Uh, you, you have been called. Uh, a volunteer is not some, a volunteer is someone who can do it or not. You have been called. You have been gifted. You have been equipped. You have been commanded not to volunteer, but to do ministry. And there's an old skeletal anatomy of an organization that I've read about about 20 years ago when I was in, when I was in seminary. Uh, The wishbones in this organization um, wish others would do the work. The the jawbones, they talk a lot, but they don't do anything else. Um, The knucklebones, they knock what others do. We don't have those there, praise God. None here at Fisherville. And it's the backbones who actually do the work. That's the, the, the skeletal anatomy of an organization. But when the church is filled with gifted, godly, committed backbones, guess what happens? Text tells us here, the building up of the body of Christ. We don't need to read a church growth manual. We have it here in Ephesians chapter 4. We don't need new methods We don't need pragmatism. We don't need strategy. We need to believe what the Bible says and then apply it for the building up of the body of Christ. As I've said, the problem in our culture, and I'm going to qualify this a second because you could take something out of context. The problem in our culture is not the progressive left. The, the problem in our culture is not LGBTQ, and then keep adding to that, I mean, because they're very creative at this point. The problem is not critical race theory. Those are problems, but they're symptomatic problems. You, you know, when someone gets COVID, they may, like I did, develop a, a controlling cough. But, but not one moment did I think my cough was the problem. Uh, I, I knew that my cough was the symptom. Now, it, it, it was really uncomfortable, and it caused problems. But my cough was a symptom of, of a deeper problem. I had COVID. And, and so what we see in our culture is a real problem. It's devastating, in fact. But it's a symptom. Let me tell you what the real problem is. In my estimation, in my view, the problem is that the church hasn't been adequately built up in the faith and therefore has not adequately infiltrated the culture with the gospel. 
And nature abhors a vacuum. You see, good things always have counterfeits. Every individual in our culture needs the gospel. They're hardwired for the gospel. Colossians 1 says, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And so every individual you meet on the street, even if they are diametrically opposed to God and Christ, they were hardwired for Christ. They need Christ. And so they need the gospel and they need to hear the good news. They need that narrative to be the narrative of their lives. But if they don't receive it, they don't hear it, and they don't see it modeled, there will be gospel replacements. All good things have counterfeits. All right? So here's my, here's my opinion. When the culture is void of the good thing, and what is the good thing? The gospel. And godly people proclaiming that gospel and living it out. When the culture is void of the good thing, counterfeits will fill the void. That's the issue, in my estimation. And so Paul is giving us a manual here, an inspired manual on how the church is not only to be built up, so that the church can actually be sought and light, its calling in the world. That brings us to what the gifts are. For the body are for verses 13 to 16. Paul writes, he says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, in this section, verses 13 to 16, Paul's going to mention maturity once and building up or growing up four times. So that kind of signals what the main point of this, this section is. Paul's biggest concern for the church is that it might be fully grown and that each member might contribute to the maturity by becoming a spiritual grown-up. And again, I think the reason we have not impacted our culture, and now the culture is embracing a, a counterfeit gospel, all right, is because we have not grown up. And that goes back to the pulpits. There's been a lot of entertaining in pulpits. There's a lot, of been of, a, a lot of tickling of the ears, a lot of entertaining of the goats instead of the equipping of the saints and the, and the sheep. But that's what Paul's concern is here. You get the church mature, everything else is going to fall into place. And that's why we should be concerned about this secularism for sure. But what we should be most concerned about is ourselves growing up and maturing. Because when the church grows up and matures, it will impact the culture. And until we grow up, the culture is going to impact us and influence us. Now, he gets into more detail as to what that maturity looks like. And so I want us to get into the actual details here. Uh, and we see three parallel statements in verse 13. Each one of them begins with the word to. Um, the, the Greek word, just for you guys that like that stuff, is the word ace. You would spell it in English, E-I-S. It translates the word to, ace. So he says, he says that we will attain until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, in one sense, the church already has unity. We've already been reconciled. We saw that. We've been made one new man, uh, Ephesians 2.15. Um, and then we saw those seven points of unity. And, 
in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then we saw in chapter 4 that we are, verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's a sense in we already have unity in Jesus Christ. He has already achieved reconciliation for us. But here the unity is something to be attained, not merely to be maintained. He says, until we all attain to the unity. It's kind of like the already, but the not yet. In other words, just as unity needs to be maintained visibly, it needs to be attained fully. Full unity doesn't yet fully exist because it's the fruit of full maturity to which members and believers should aim. And actually it has two parts. Notice, unity of the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. So unity, you hear people say, we, we, we need to uh, minimize doctrine because it divides. And Paul says, actually, it's the point of unity. Unity of the faith. That's not your faith, personal faith that you exercise, your subjective faith. This faith that he's referring to here is objective. It's the objective content of what is believed. Now, let me speak about this just a moment, because clearly, in a, in a, in a church, as many people as we have, not that we're a big church, but even in a church our size, we're not going to agree on every point of the faith. So what is he referring to here? Well, borrowing from Dr. Moeller's medical triage. Uh, if you go to an ER, there, there's, a, there's a, a medical triage. A, a level one is a really severe issue. So if you had a bullet hole to the chest, they're, they're going to see you immediately. Uh, a level two is serious, but it's not a serious level one. Level two would be like a, an allergic reaction to a bee sting, maybe. Uh, a level three, it, it's painful, but it, it, your life's probably not in danger. Like I, I remember Heather took me uh, on a particular Saturday in 2005. She took me twice to the, e, the ER because of an ear infection. And I literally cried in the ER. If you had seen my reaction to my ear infection, you wouldn't be here this morning. <laughs> You'd be in another church. Um, but I, my life wasn't in danger. I was just in a lot of pain. There are... You know, likewise, level one, level two, and level three doctrines. And in the church, I think level ones and level twos, we have to be unified. And so a level one would be something like you and I, a level one would be something like this, the, the Trinity. If, if, if you and I do not agree on the triunity of God, at least one of us isn't a Christian. If, if you and I do not agree in the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person, at least one of us is not a Christian. If you and I do not agree that salvation is by all of grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, because Jesus alone paid our penalty by satisfying the wrath of God on our sin and was raised bodily, not just spiritually, but bodily from the grave, at least one of us isn't a Christian. Those are level one doctrines that are to unify us. If we don't agree on these things, there can be no unity. He's talking about unity of the faith, not just this sentimental, let's get along with each other. Doctrine matters. Level twos are, are more denominational beliefs. Uh, are the confessions of a particular church. So a level two, for instance, you and I might disagree on some matter with regard to a level two importance. So we are elder led. And, and you might believe that a church has to be elder ruled. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian 
Doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. But for you, you want, you, you believe that an elder ruled church is the model and you cannot be in a, a, an elder led church. So you go to a church that's elder ruled. That's a level two doctrine. You and I can still be brothers and sisters. We can still have Bible study together, perhaps, and even hang out together and be close, but we, we probably can't be in the same church. That's a level two. And then level threes, um, they, these are issues that you and I can disagree. We perhaps could even be on the same staff with each other. Uh, it, it might have to do um, with issues with regard to the role of deacons or something of that nature. But Paul is telling us here that unity comes, true unity comes by the objective truths of the faith. And then he says, in the knowledge of the Son of God, we will grow in unity practically as we grow in our intimacy with Jesus. It's true in marriage. It's also true in the local church. Now, Paul's already prayed that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. That's the, lo- that's the knowledge he's referring to here. It's the intimacy of the Savior so that you grow in your love for him and you grow in your capacity to, 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 to see him as precious, as Peter would say. And so Paul is referring here to this twofold knowledge of, of uh, head and heart. But notice as well, he says in verse 13, until we all reach unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now, this is singular. And, and the emphasis here is not on the male, the male Christian. Uh, the emphasis here is on the one new man in Christ that Jesus has achieved in, in chapter 2, verse four, uh, 15. So clearly, it would imply individual growth, individual conformity to Christ. But the problem in the West is we've put too much emphasis on the individual. And here, Paul is putting an emphasis on the corporate, mature manhood, singular. He refers to the infants, infants later on in the passage, that's individuals. But mature manhood is corporate conformity to Christ, where a church grows in maturity as each individuals in the church grow in maturity. And then notice, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, what does he mean here? This is a church maturing to what it is. Now, what is it? Chapter 1, verse 23 told us it's the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. So Christ is filling the church. One day he's going to fill the cosmos with his rule and his reign. But this is a church maturing to what it is. And now Paul is going to give us evidence of this maturity. Verse 14, he says, So that we may no longer be children. Now, the Lord loves children. And Jesus said, let the children come to me. And so in, one, in, in the New Testament, that term is used in a very glowing way in one sense. But there's another way this term is used as well. And it's to refer to spiritually immature believers. In, in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says that the Corinthians were like children in their thinking in their understanding. And of course, you know how a child reacts to, to issues and, and struggles and trials. And he says, we cannot be content with that. We cannot be content with that. Where a person doesn't have his way and he, he has a fit. He acts carnally because he doesn't get his way done in the local church. He says, being a spiritual infant is not even an option. The writer of Hebrews speaks about those who are unskilled in the word of righteousness since they are children. Unskilled in the word of righteousness. 
And so, and so Paul is concerned here that we grow up. And why do we grow up? So that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine. Anything goes. Every, every teaching we hear, we, we're subject to believe by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So here he's picturing a storm that will toss us to and fro like leaves in the wind. He's speaking here of the catastrophic effects of remaining spiritually immature. Again, that's been the problem in our churches in the West and look at the product. Instead of influencing the culture, the culture has set the tone and determined the direction of our country. And he doesn't leave us in the dark what he means by these storms, wind of doctrine. Now, what does he mean here? That, uh, that those are normally attacks on the person of God, the triunity of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or on the work of God, the gospel. All right, so that's what, he, that's what normally uh, this kind of language refers to. Human cunning. What is human cunning? It's, it's bringing in extra biblical philosophies. And then notice craftiness in deceitful schemes. I believe that's spiritual warfare. So I think Paul is referring to the kind of storms that can occur within a body because of the... Because of the high percentage of people in the body who have not grown in their faith, but also the storms that occur outside in the culture. And there's a coming storm that will likely be perpetuated through legislation that was passed on Thursday. I think that this is a, a proper place to speak to that for a moment. Not to be political, but this has ramifications for the church. Of course, we know that this legislation that was passed Thursday is called the Equality Act, which redefines sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity as federally protected classes, which is a reversal of the creation order. Again, nature pours a vacuum. We have not taught in our schools and in many cases in the pulpit the doctrine of creation. And when the doctrine of creation ex nihilo by the triune God out of nothing something's going to fill the void. And now we have this reversal of the created order. In this legislation, it inserts the right to abortion up to the point of birth as a civil rights act. It forces, it will seek to force medical professionals to perform or assist in these abortions, God help our medical professionals. It will force employers to cover sex reassignment surgeries. And it will seek to force churches. Notice I said seek. It will seek to enforce, uh, enforce churches and, and Christian schools and Christian-owned businesses to recognize a personally chosen gender. And if passed into law, will create a high probability that Christian teachers and Christian doctors will be fired. And preachers will have their speech monitored. There's a sense in which I wish they would monitor these sermons. 
and would curtail religious freedom protection for Christian-owned businesses and Christian schools, Christian seminaries. That's the winds outside of us. And the body of Christ has to mature. There's no choice. The body of Christ has to mature to meet these challenges. Indeed. Here's what Paul says. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Literally, it's truthing in love. It goes beyond just speaking. It's maintaining. It's doing. It's living truth in love. Now, regrettably, it's rarely seen in in, in Christ's church in a balanced way. So for the immature, you might have someone who's really zealous for truth. But you've never seen this person love anyone. (laughs) They're harsh. They're bitter. They're judgmental. And and they love truth, but they don't love love. And then there's others who wouldn't know truth if it hit them between the eyes, but they seem really compassionate. And on all that is a sentimentality. If we're going to be effective, and, and, and let me just speak to this a moment. If you're on social media and you're a member of this church, truth and love. Stop the crassness. Stop the profanity. It doesn't belong with the body of Christ. And I've seen it. I've seen it. And and it, and it, and it, it, it eclipses God's glory. We are to, this is how we're to impact the culture right here. Truthing in love, not sarcasm, in love. This is the mark of maturity. And it's also vital for church maturity. Indeed, notice in in the second part of verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ. Now that's a restatement of verse 13 for time's sake. I won't get back into that. But this involves corporate intentionality from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the whole body, the the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is complete maturity and Christlikeness through corporate intentionality. To the degree that the members of the church are not intentionally using their gifts, investing in one another, our maturity will be stunted. All right? And there's a lot at stake. We've already seen that. And and so broadly uh, speaking here, this means that no growth is of use, which does not correspond to the whole body. Now, I recognize there are shut-ins, providentially hindered, can't be here. Others who have comorbidities, it would be reckless to be here. I get that. But in the normal set of circumstances, our growth is of no use if it does not benefit the body. And we need each other. I read a study this week, just real briefly, that found that group, and this was the term that was used, group connectedness people with unhealthy habits, so a chain smoker or someone who, who, uh, who, who drinks to excess and drunkenness. But these people who are group connected with otherwise unhealthy habits consistently outlive disconnected people who have otherwise healthy habits. And I think it's the way God designed us. We are the image of God. And there is community in the Godhead. We need each other as we image God. You pull a leaf off a tree, what happens to that leaf? It dies. You pull this hot coal or hot ember from a fire, what happens? It becomes ashes. But notice, from whom? This refers back to Christ the head, which speaks to the fact that he is to control center of 
corporate and spiritual life, the power, he is the power, Christ by spirit, is the power for our being equipped, for our maturing. It comes through our dependency on him. But notice, so is the joining and the holding together of the body. I love that because it's Christ who's responsible for that, not the pastors. That's beyond my pay grade. But having said that, that that does not minimize human responsibility. Let us close with this. We also see by every joint... Now, what is he referring to there? Every believer, every member in a body, by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working. Each part is working. What's that referring to? You're working. And how do you work? Your spiritual gifts. You say, well, there's no place for me to use my gifts. Yes, there is. There is a place for you to use your spiritual gifts. You have to pray that the Lord would open up that place, give you eyes to see. So every joint here refers to all believers working in their gifts. In other words, the health of the church, which means the health of the culture. Church, the, the culture is dependent on us. We're not dependent on them. We, let me just say this. We are not dependent on the culture to get right. The culture is dependent on us to get right. All right? So the health of the growth of the church doesn't come from any kind of pragmatic methods. We don't have to go out and read manuals. But the ordinary means of every member using their gifts in close connection with the body. If we would commit to that, oh my goodness, at least this section of the town would be turned upside down. So resurrection power in the church flows from Christ the head through individual gifted believers in relationship with each other. So where the people of God are ministering to each other in their gifts, God is at work. God's glory is in that. And where he works, guess what happens? The rule of Christ is extended. And what did we see last week? One day it's going to fill the earth. That rule. The animals seem to get that. And so they faithfully served their king. More importantly, Paul says, we are redeemed to do so. Let us take heed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Grow us up, Lord. I pray that every Christian here would not be uninformed concerning spiritual gifts, as Paul would write in Corinthians. That they would come to understand how you've gifted us, how you've redeemed us at an infinite cost of your Son, and that out of that, Lord, we would speak the truth in love and become what you've called us to be, salt and light in a very clearly dark culture. We ask this for the sake and the name of the Son of God. Amen.